Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for being here. Um, properly grateful, really. Uh, this is going to be a lovely conversation. We've been... So, panel. Um, Lloyd, Andrew, Helen, you can see name. Oh, panel names are going to appear up here in a minute, I think. My question for you, um, and you're just going to mull on this for a moment while I just give a little bit of context, but my question for you and for all of you here too, perhaps, is what advice would you give your 11-year-old self looking back as learners? And this matters, you know, because the world's gone learning mad in a hugely encouraging way. But learning as we know it doesn't work for about, about half the kids in the world, roughly. You know, 2.2 billion children out there, about half of them are having a fairly torrid time of it. And of the half that are having an education, we seem to fail about a third. And of the two thirds that are left, only half of them enjoy it, if you can do the maths on those fractions. So, you know, education isn't working all that good. And we've been meeting together to talk about children's media. You know, I've been a professor for 30 years. And when we go back to the video discs, I think I was, I was briefly the largest producer of CD-ROM in Europe. You'll be um, uh, amazed to hear, but that's only because nobody been making very many, you know. But we've constantly talked about the, um, the empowerment that media gives us to have a voice, the democratisation of technology. And I think what you've seen here, and we're going to talk about a lot, is, you know, 30 years of us saying, you know, this is a democratising technology, and now suddenly, you know, around the world, we've got the Friday strikes going on, we've got some terrifyingly articulate and wise children who are saying, you know what, enough, enough, time to sort it out. And you couldn't have put that better, Finley, I'm proud, proud of what you said there, mate. Your parents should be bursting with pride and, um, and terror, really, because... Um, where this is all going is towards a very scary place. I think my favourite frightening statistic is no beach you've ever stood on in your entire life will exist in 35 years' time. That's a pretty stark thing. Every beach you've ever stood on, you'll be calf deep in 35 years. So it's interesting times, and here we are with probably the most powerful tool to change hearts and minds to make things better. And three of the wisest folk, I'm, I only came because I heard we got a good panel. That was before I knew about Finley. So, Floyd, your 10, your 11-year-old self sitting there in... Where were you at 11? 11, I was in Bradford. I was uh, born in Bradford. So, uh, 11 years of age, I was going to uh, White Manor School at that stage. And you... My goodness, you've been around the world a bit. You know, Afghanistan is only a tiny corner of where you, we, we both were swapping um, conversation about Pakistan. I mean, a big project in Pakistan. Lloyd knows it really well. So what would you say to the 11-year-old you? Uh, I would have liked to say a number of things, but the thing I would definitely say would be to have as many experiences as you can and adventures, follow your super North Star, and then give something back to the society. That would be my... Yeah, and I was interested to hear. I'm interested to hear your 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 plan when we were talking earlier. If you're going to like, do this, have a gap year on Sea Shepherd, off to St Andrews. But I kind of, if it was me, I'd tear up the plan. But keep the dreams because you never would know where the dreams are going to lead you. Know, but you'd be faithful to your dreams. Helen, what would you tell a little you? <laughs> I think I'm just so inspired by so many children today, and. I would have liked to have told my 11-year-old self to look beyond my immediate surroundings. I think at my age, I was very... My world was quite limited, and my awareness of what was going on further than my own doorstep. Clearly, I didn't have the internet when I was 11. Right. But um, <laughs> I, th I think even at that stage, it, it would have been useful if there were more children like today's children. Eyes on the horizon, is it? Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's... Um... I was trying to, find my, trying to find my senior rail card coming up here on the train, and I pulled out my wallet, and I've, I've, I counted up because we were going global, and I realised I've got seven different currencies in my wallet. So, you know, that money hasn't kept up with going global, so it's not unreasonable to, to think education might have taken a while, and children's media might have taken even longer. But keeping your eyes on the horizon is quite hard because, of course, we live, you know, we live on a longitude... Um, you know, when 
you know, you're having dinner tonight, so are the people in Johannesburg, same time, same meal. But we also live on a latitude when you go to bed, they're getting up in California and uh, they, you pass on your project, it goes around the world. It's very different living on the longitude than living on the latitude. So that looking around the world, you've got to look in two directions, I think, always. But yeah, Andrew. And I have to just say, you know, I just love what Discovery has been doing for a long time, not just because of the content, all content providers here, but because there's never been a heartbeat with Discovery when they haven't thought about professional development. How are we going to use the stuff? And uh, so thank you for that. But what would you tell your 11-year-old? You know? Well, it's interesting. It's sort of, I think we're all thinking similar kind of things about that. Uh, embrace experiences, take on those experiences. Because I think from my point of view, looking back at my 11-year-old self is, I think I entered the world that we're now in where your career is not linear and listening to everybody on the panel about their journey to being here today and all the different routes we've been into and the different experiences that we've had, yeah. that as a 10 and 11 year old, you need to prepare yourself for being in that world that you've no idea what will happen. So you need to embrace those experiences to prepare yourself for the experiences yet to come uh, and just kind of enjoy them for what they are. You never know where they're going to be valuable. And I mean, would you all trust your 11-year-old self? I think the thing I'd say to my 11-year-old self is, trust yourself, you know, you're not wrong. <laughs> Go for it. I mean, would, did you, was, was the 11-year-old Andrew a wise soul or a...? I, I, I think probably not. Uh, not, as, not as wise as you'd like, like to be in retrospect, but Finley and I were certainly having a good conversation about this kind of idea earlier. And, and, and I think all of us on the panel probably strongly believe in giving voice to students and that the things that students say are remarkable and are challenging and, and astonishes every time we work. And there should be no lack of ambition for, for students. I think it's quite often that educators make the mistake of, of giving the narrative to the students rather than letting students create the narrative for themselves. And certainly when I listen to students all around the world, they all have ambition for themselves in their local context. And I think what we can assist with is how they connect to that global context and seeing that they can make a difference, whether it be on their street, their beach, their town, their nation or globally, that, they are, that they, their ambition that they have at 10 and 11 is something that they, we need to connect to and not have knocked out to us by over-measurement in, in educational performance. No, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> throw that controversy. Let's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. speak not of measuring. Um, no, I, I mean it's it's. When I go back to those early kind of video disc days and the dawn of the internet, I remember, correctly, the first my first Christmas just after the World Wide Web code had been released, you know, and I had an advent calendar on the the internet. And it was the only one, you know, and uh, I checked last Christmas, there were just over seven million. So you know, things have exploded. And, uh, but at the same time, I think, and a lot of folk here have been around this as long as longer than me even, but you, you will have seen appropriation. You know, when new things appear, doesn't matter whether it's the phone or the computer or, you know, I, I was part of the Google Glass development team, you know, doesn't matter what appears, it's either appropriated we, we love your computer, you can have a class set, um, or it's confiscated, you know, you can't come in here without phone. I think we've hit the point beyond appropriation. I think the technologies of new media, of new communication, can't be taken away. You know, Findlay's going to be walking around, you know, young, young Findlay in 10 years' time is going to be sitting here with a pair of Nikon contact lenses watching data from all over the world and he can't take his eyes out so he's off and away do you are you optimistic at the moment about where all this is going and this is my question to all three of you and i'm going to have a show of hands from you are you optimistic about where it's all going or do you fear the you know the measuring and the heavy hand of the many departments around the world clamping down on the creative this has been such a creative community are you hopeful Right, so what I would say is, I think it's a brilliant question as well. So I think creativity, you'll not stop it. So you're quite right. It's, it's out, it's going to go. But I think you still have to come back to some fundamentals that are not going to change on performance, 
on what people require, some character traits and beliefs, some, some simple elements. Because whilst I would say you could have a set of glasses on here that give you lots of data, you will still have to take them off to look out to make sure you don't miss something coming your way. So I think you have to be really careful about where the balance of these things go, not to one extreme, where you're completely immersed with thousands of tons of data that means nothing. It doesn't give you any information. It overloads you with things that are not relevant to the things that definitely are gonna, gonna help you go to another another level of performance. And you have to come back to what, what does performance look like? And for me, it will always be being really clear on what direction you want to go. What is that, super, what I class as a super North Star? So what are you trying to achieve? What is the strategy, the facts, the figures, and detail? What emotions do you need, the values, and then resilience? And those kind of fundamental basics won't change with tons more information. You just have to be better at understanding these different elements to be a competent individual. And also realize life's a journey. It's not about all this stuff. It's about you being the best version of yourself. So that is about character traits. That is about adventures, learning skills, having disappointments, coming back from failure. That's not going to change. All this other stuff is just an enhancement to ha potentially have a better adventure. But of course, um, we work very hard in, in education to stop children being the best they can possibly be. Um, you know, if I take something as simple as the classroom environment, which I've been into over, well, just over 70 exam rooms in the last two years, I haven't been into one. It wasn't damaging the prospects of the children. They're, they're too hot, too much CO2, the light levels are way too low because they've got some clapped out old projector that the bulb's going on so they've all drawn the blinds, you know, and, and children are really struggling in school to be the best they can be. But of course, what you've heard here is outside school, on the beach, lobbying parliament, scampering around all over the place. He can be stellar, but sitting in a, sitting in a room with the door locked, breathing in the CO2 or 30 other kids isn't. So in Twinkle, um, you know, which is booming at the moment. I mean, it's... You know, I'm a fan. There's so much. I'm with 10,000 pieces of, of resource out there. Huge number. Are you optimistic? Do you feel the, the company is booming? Do you feel that learning is too? I think regardless of any pressures coming from above, any government initiatives, you'll still get really passionate, creative teachers in classrooms all around the world. And you will get creative, passionate children and they feed off each other all the time. And I don't think you will... Yeah, I, I definitely have hope whilst you still have that situation. I can't see that situation going away. And as we move forward into a more technological world, people are starting to see the value in the emotional side of things, the creative side of things, the artistic side of things that they don't see being replaced by robots. So all of a sudden, the bit that technology might replace isn't quite so important. That emotional intelligence, the well-being, support, you know, early teaching, supporting children into how to support each other, then brings it into the workplace when they're in the workplace and they have that emotional intelligence to know how, how important well-being is, how to support each other, which kind of goes further when you look at children like Finlay looking at how to support the planet. And I think that kind of feeling is growing as the technology increases. It's almost like technology is going to take care of the data side of things. But we need to look at the full, full no, human... I mean, yes, you're, I, I mean... Computers are really good at doing what they're told. They're really good at repeating things. They're really good at never being tired and just keeping going. They're really good at pattern matching. They're really good at remembering. So if that's all kids are doing, they've got no future. But what students are good at is, of course, ingenuity, curiosity, deep learning, collaboration, mutuality. Computers can't do any of those things. So, but the problem is, how do we move a world of learning away from those very repetitive things over to these new, well, old actually, you know, creative, curious things without losing, without losing depth? Because you've got to know stuff. You're not going to get there without knowing stuff. We were, we were just chatting, and I've just learned something about sharp behaviour I didn't know. Um, so, you know, every day, every day we learn something from each other. Really, really, really important. I went to um, a discovery workshop in, uh, in America. So, you know, apologies to anybody here from America. I'd stay, you know. <laughs> and uh, there was nobody in the workshop until 10 minutes before the end. All the American teachers came rushing and sat down. I thought, how curious. And then 
at the end they gave out the free T-shirts, you know. <laughs> yeah. They'd only come for the T-shirts. And I thought, that just felt to me like a disaster. You know, the only thing they could get from all that wonderful content was a, was a clean shirt, you know. But you must be optimistic. I mean, how many, how many screens, how many families, how many places... Do they see your stuff? Well, I mean, Discovery, as in Discovery Communications, is in every country around the world, really, in every territory. But I think, uh, I think, in terms of optimism, I think it comes from two sides, from my point of view. I think there's a, a democratisation of education that happens through technology, and by that, people like Finlay are able to do peer-to-peer -peer education and kind of, dare I say it, bypass the classroom sometimes. Um, and I think, as you say, we need a very, very broad education and then students themselves selecting the areas of passion where they go deep and then we learn from those which have that depth of knowledge, so the, the Finleys of this world. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's a, a, a democratisation that happens with, with media that is now in the hands of students around the world and including in, in areas that, that in many ways are, are relatively deprived because once the mobile devices become available, uh, kids have it in their hands more often. But then at the other side of that, picking up on, on Finley's point, uh, I'm starting to see more uh, nations introducing skills into curriculum and life skills. So we work very closely with the Egyptian government. We've helped them to develop a new national curriculum. We, we led the professional development for all their early years teachers, 80,000 teachers who introduced a new curriculum last year where life skills is a significant part of the curriculum. And that revelation that what you're not you, you, you're not teaching kids just a set of facts. You're teaching them how to learn, and you're teaching them how to develop as people and to make appropriate choices and how to collaborate in the future. And the fact that there is policy being made and recognising that for, for an education system to improve, it needs to actually give its students skills, not just buckets of, of, of irrelevant knowledge, unless it's connected with those skills. So I think it's having it in the hands of the students, but also leading through appropriate policy and where we try to provide the glue is getting the professional development across there but to it, get people to, where it gets, to do it. Here's where it gets really tricky, is it? And, and Helen, you know, you, you, you'll know how subtle those cultural nuances are. You know, it's, it, in a, everybody's different, every culture. I mean, Hullapool is different to Blackpool, it's different to Brightlingsea, where I live. You know, everywhere's different. So how do, we, how do we, as a media industry for children, how do we build those cultural nuances you know, if we believe, a, a, I love what they say in Saudi Arabia, a pot boils from the bottom up, you know. So it's a very democratic thing, I think, unusually. Um, but how if that pot is boiling from the bottom up, how do we make sure that people's culture is represented, that the local, you know, your town is unique and very special? Um, how do we make sure it's still his town? Or the same is true of Floyd, some of the places you've been, you know, very cultural specific things but Helen how do we do that? I think personally at Twinkle we're, we're in many countries around the world now and almost 50% of our users are outside the UK but what's really really important to us is that we get it right in the country where people are accessing it so all of our teaching content that's written for countries outside England so even including Scotland and Wales and Ireland as outside England and Northern Ireland because they have different curriculum documents all, all of our content is written by teachers who have taught and live in those countries teaching those curriculum. So it's not, it's not us writing in England and then no, no, trying no. to sell it to other countries. Uh, you know, our, our Australian resources are all written by our, our Australian teachers who are in Australia teaching in Australian schools. Yeah, some of my Australian schools are stage, not age. So, you know, you go as far and as fast as you like. You don't have to wait to move. I mean, Finley's 11, but he could clearly be sitting with the 15-year-olds, couldn't he? You know, so stage not age is, is good there, but it's not. There would be trees on here, probably, I suspect. Mm. Some of the places you've been, tough places. Mm. Um, and here we go. We're heading for a global curriculum, for sure. I used to fly on Sabina Airlines, you know, Belgian airline. They used to give you beer and chocolates because it was Belgian, you know. And if you fly to Australia, the Qantas, which used to be the Queensland and Northern Territories Air Service, it's nothing to do with Queensland, it was just a global carrier. So, you know, it seems daft, doesn't it, that you would have to be looking at the British curriculum, oh, no, the English curriculum, the Welsh curriculum, the curriculum on the Island Man. We're going to head for a global curriculum for sure, and PISA 
of course, is now not talking about, do you know, this maths or this physics. They're saying, what do you like as a global citizen then? You know, what do you like as a collaborative problem solver? How long do you think before we get to a global curriculum? And that's for Andrew. And then going to come back to Floyd and say, how's that going to play in Afghanistan? I mean, in terms of timeline for a global curriculum, I, I think there's there's so many other geopolitical issues that, that come into play about uh, vested interests, and I don't want to go too too controversial there. No, be but I think, but I think in terms of the all asleep. Uh, <laughs> but in terms of the, uh, I think thematic global cu curriculum is already beginning to be there uh, because of that sense of uh, the, the the reach that technology has, and the and the way that. Uh, every nation is interdependent now, that people are already seeing that need for an interconnected curriculum. And so that internationally benchmarked and, and obviously things like PISA helps for that. But also recognising, we were talking earlier, weren't we, a little bit about the changing economies in places like the Middle East, where, where they're recognising that, that, the, the, that the main source of, of wealth in that area is changing. So we need to change and become more global. And I think uh, the, the, the things we're going through in the UK at the moment, I think we will come round to that sense that we need to plug into a global world. Uh, and that will, will drive the, the need for a kind of core expected set of curricula. But I think what you're also saying, it's quite important that we, we still celebrate our local uh, culture and that diversity doesn't just mean the kind of interesting thing of a, of a diverse single classroom or a diverse single place. It means Ullapool. It means uh, the, the back streets of Cairo that I know very well these days uh, and, and, and the huge differences between there and it's celebrating all of those locations in, in the locality and getting them out there. To so you, so you want a global framework yeah. but, but, but locally applied which seems to me the kind of role we should all be doing here. I'm not sure we should be waiting for a government for that. Mm. Floyd, I mean, we've got a, an international baccalaureate for posh kids in posh schools. Mm. What about poor kids in those schools? Again, I would always, I mean, the baccalaureate one of my favorite, would be one of my favorite um, options for a, a curriculum. Anyway. Well, I love the middle years of the so. project-based work and the discovery stuff. But what I'd come back to, I actually work in education around the world, and I would come back to these life skills. What do you actually require on your journey through life? And I can honestly say to you, it has not changed in any environment I've ever been in. I think knowledge is about wisdom, common sense, and judgment, so knowledge is important. And although you do have to have some cultural adaptations to the way information is presented, as I said, when it comes to what people require, one, to grow as an individual so that your life is fulfilled for you as a person, the fact that you've got to communicate and connect with different people, which means you have to adopt, ad adapt your communication style to be able to be no, uh, a negotiator, to be flexible in an approach and understand difference. And then you also need resilience. And then you do need to give something back. I think what those kind of fundamental things could be a global, uh, a global curriculum now, because most people I come across believe that in any way. It's a small minority that don't. And what I'd also say is you can't wait for governments because it's just too slow. You have to turn around and do what Finley's doing, going, I'm not waiting for anybody. I will change it myself. And this is where I would say we have a real impact with student voice. And I am blown away. I, I do leadership training with some of the top businesses in the world, top sports teams. I still am astounding about the innate intelligence of children. And they can have a massive impact. And I think those should become the activists to change things for the better going forward. I would never wait for any government. Otherwise, we'll be doing the same discussion in the next 30, 40 years. It has to start from the bottom. Finley, you've talked to some, um, some politicians and people in power. You know, um, what do you think they could have learned from, from talking to students? Well, that's quite difficult, actually, because we've, as we've been talking about here, <clears throat> the reason that um, it would take 30 or 40 years to really leave it to the government is because the politicians say they're going to do something, but then they don't do it. So, to answer... Wait, what was the question again? Sorry. Well, I mean, you've answered yeah. it, really. I mean, okay. they're slow. They are. They are, they slow. are ridiculously slow. And some politicians are, say, to do with um, climate change or the climate crisis, they will... They say, well, we'll just set net zero for 2050, which is them kicking the can down the road to when they don't have to deal with the problem. Yeah, well, you've done a good job in waking them up for that, and not just you, but uh, a number of you. I think the Friday thing's been really, really colossal. But the media hasn't been very strong at all that. I mean, do you feel you're 
represented? I mean, people have seen what you've done. Do you feel you're represented in the, in the, on television, in the newspapers? Do you get fair coverage? I, I don't feel like um, we, as the climate strike movement, as the marine environment, are represented at all. Um, this is a children's media conference. Has anyone here seen a children's TV programme which has mentioned the plastic pollution or climate change, unlike Newsround or FYI? There's so little anything. My, uh, my, my daughter runs a beach school with little under five-year-olds and they're down on the beach with digital microscope and you know, looking at the sand and seeing those little red and blue specks in the sand that's already there, you know. But the local media aren't very interested in, no. in all that. You know? It doesn't help that we're in Scotland because even though I've been striking the longest, I've probably had the least publicity because I'm all the way up there. In London, there's loads of BBC centres and everything. If you're Sweden, you'd be getting a good old coverage. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But because there's so many TV centres in London, it's very easy for them to re report it. But people in London aren't just going to wander up to Scotland, are they? <laughs> well... We've had it once. Nothing like a good Kaylee, but I know what you mean. Um, so, look, you, you three, I mean, the... You know what's happened with all this over the history of, of, of um, children's media, you know, time and time and time again, children have got hold of the channel, they've got hold of... I mean, you know, 100 million people watching unwrapping videos on YouTube is significant compared to the Morecambe and Wyeshire or other huge... Huge events. I don't know how many people were watching the girls playing football the other night, me amongst them, but it pales into insignificance between people watching seven-year-olds unwrapping presents, you know. So, but what happens? Do you think there's a moment of patience that they're like, we're done, we've had enough? Do you think children will actually take control of their own learning? Why wouldn't they? They've got all the tools, they've got all the channels, why wouldn't they do that? Floyd? No, I don't see why they wouldn't. I think, again, if you have um, the appropriate media that captures a child, that can give them all the information, and you get great instruction, I think that's, that's powerful. I, would still, I still believe that coming together as a cohort is beneficial, because that kind of interaction you should never get away with, the ability to connect with people, to learn together. But I do think a proportion of that um, can be done on their own as well. And I think with the right, the right media facility, and I've been looking at a number of different adaptations and listening to the, um, to the team today, I, I, they gave me some great ideas about how you can put things across in different ways. So I think that will play a major part going forward. But I still think the coming together of people to mix, to communicate, to learn together is a powerful mix, and I would not want to lose that. I think no, mutuality is a nice thing, but you don't necessarily need hour by hour geographical proximity not at all. for not at all. that. I mean, Helen, your your stuff's fab. Um, I remember when we set up Teachers TV. You remember the Teachers TV channel? I was on the board. You know, we weren't allowed to say, but I can tell you now, breaching the Official Secrets Act. Still, you know. We had over a quarter of a million children watching Teachers TV. They were watching programmes about how to teach. They'd go into school and say to their, their teacher, hey, mate, have you seen this thing on teaching maths less boringly? Would you watch it, please? You know, I mean, why wouldn't kids just go with your stuff on their own and get on with it? I've got a perfect example of how that just happened recently, actually. We, we were working with UK RAS and we um, ran a robotics competition for schools. And um, we designed an app and you use AR and you, you basically design your robot. You, uh, you have a series of challenges on Mars that you have to complete. Um, there's four different challenges to enter for the competition. Um, my husband happens to be a design technology teacher. And so I said, oh, there's this brilliant competition. Why don't you get to get... Oh, I haven't got time. <laughs> so that next week, you know, it really is that... It really is easy. Just, you know, just go and do it. It's like, oh, I haven't got time doing the green car project. I've got this after school. I'm doing this. I haven't got time. And I was sometimes like, look, you don't have to do anything. The kids will know how to do this. And it's like you just need to sign them up, give them a login, send them home for homework. Within two days, four of them have <coughs> entered the competition. He still hasn't even looked at the app. <laughs> so it's, I mean, I, I've, I've taught children in the past where I was kind of like, if I lock that child in a cupboard for a week with a book, he's going to learn it anyway. It's, you know, I'm not going to take, I'm not going to take credit for what he's learned. This child is just a sponge. And you have children like that everywhere. And you, you give everywhere. them the right access, absolutely everywhere, absolutely everywhere in the world. Yeah. You give them the right access to the right tools 
and they, they just soak it all in. So one thing we're trying to do with our technology, with the apps that we're developing, with the AR stuff, is just excite children, and it's all, it's what we call accidental learning. It's like they're having fun, but it's, it's all useful information going in. Knowledge by osmosis. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, Andrew, we're sort of thinking maybe, you know, a future world of learning. You, you were talking earlier about you know, co-construction, really, but... You know, we're into learner-led, aren't we, I think, at this point. And, um, you know, it's a 4K video capture device, 60 frames per second, for goodness sake, you know. And, um, and when I've got three cameras on the back, I'll have AR as well. You know, why, why would they wait? Why would they wait? I think we're, I think we're not seeing a learner-led world as one that looks like Lord of the Flies. It's more, mm. more like Harry Potter as a bunch of kids together against the world. And, or maybe the, maybe the, uh, the Goonies, you know. Um, where does discovery go in a learner-led world? Well, I mean, we, we focus on three key things. Content and getting that hands in, uh, in the hands of teachers, but crucially students. And then professional development, so that the teachers understand how to use that content in the, in the modern world, but also then community and connecting teachers to their best resource, which is each other, and having that conversation going on. So they understand what, what's happening in all those diverse classrooms. But I think it is that, it's getting it in the hands of the students. I think one of my favourite simple little anecdotes was uh, going into a school in the UK to lead some professional development on coding for our coding resource. And the teacher excitedly showing me the, the, the lesson plan file for the year two class, which was actually owned by a year five student because he was the person teaching the year two students because the, the doddery old teachers that we were couldn't, couldn't cope with the content. So the 10-year-old boy was going down and teaching the, the coding curriculum to the, to the six-year-olds. And that sense that you've got that knowledge and expertise in the room. Why not use it? Why not pass that down? You don't course, have to be the sage on the stage. And You're, of course, every, if I go into every church, every orchestra, every family, every sports club, every anything I've got, young children chasing after the role model of older children, the older children thinking, blimey, I better get my facts straight here because this little one's a bit sharp and the little one wanting to be like the older kid, except when we get into education where we've stratified. I get really depressed when I see children's media products saying, you know, for this age range, as though that had any bearing on it at all. So you know, one thing you could do, I think, would be tear up any reference to age in any of your stuff that would be doing you guys a favour, that's for sure. Um, well, let's go on a little bit. Let's just push that boat out a little bit further then. So where do we, where's the engine for change coming from in all this? You know, we, we've, we've heard a hunger to be part of the debate and you've seen pretty clear evidence that, that he ain't no fool, you know. <laughs> and, and, you know, we've all got little anecdotes about, well, that was working, that was working, but... On the other hand, you know, if we wound back to, you know, John Barker's education um, media conferences in Edinburgh in the 70s, you know, we've been saying much of the same sort of thing. So where, where does the engine come from for all this? Is it, is it going to be this industry? Is it going to be these students armed with tools? Is it going to be innovative new companies that just pop up in the way that Airbnb or whatever popped up? Where's change going to come from for all of you? Helen first. I think it's coming from all directions and I think the voice is getting louder at the moment because you have the children leading the movement, you have interested groups who are all, like I was in London a few weeks ago, um, session led by the Curiosity Box, trying to work out from all areas of society how we get children absolutely curious and in, intrigued with science yeah. it, across everything, in and out of the classroom. Uh, it was a physically active learning um, conference in Leeds where there's a lot of academics trying to get behind it but Public Health England on you know we don't want children sat at behind a desk and that equals learning it needs to be out the classroom it needs to be in the hall if it needs to be wherever you know learning needs to happen actively get children moving because it gets you you know there's there's evidence and research that shows that it gets your brain moving it gets, everything is much better you've got all the climate change things more more things are coming into the curriculum that have that global awareness and the the citizenship aspect you and i think it's all so just many directions, yeah i think it's all coming all that, together yeah. that it will all end up being linked yeah. well i hope so <laughs> andrew what do you reckon i mean i suppose the key word for me is is listening because all of those stakeholders you've mentioned there and probably many others 
are all actually involved in how change works, but it's actually listening to the voices of, of Finlay and his, and his contemporaries and his peers, uh, and actually hearing the voice of, of students in education, but also hearing the voices of, of the teachers, of the families, of the communities, of the, the, the global experts in various different fields. And I think it very, very much fits in with the, the things that Finley's saying there about developing those skills around, around resilience, that we have to be open-minded enough to accept the voices of others uh, in order to create... Yeah, this is beyond co-construction. Yeah. This is about listening. Absolutely. Above, yeah. above all else. And as twice we've heard the F word, family, uh, mentioned. And hugely important. I remember very early days of computing, I did a a booklet for the BBC, well, help your child with computers at home. We did a few programmes about it, you know, and parents were key and they, they sold out, but the booklet was reprinted so often, they just stopped printing it and it was bankrupt in the corporation, I think, you know. But that, the voice of parents in all this, I mean, <coughs> Finley, your parent, your, was that your dad with you earlier? Yes. I mean, he's, he must be, he must be scared and patient and excited all, all at once, you know. what. What's, what's he done to help with all this? Well, he studied ecology, which sort of helped everything. And he also works by the sea, so that helps as well. And I guess because he studied ecology, he sort of just brought that up on me and my sister when we were growing up. But in order to protect something, you need to protect something else at the same time. But I guess if he'd have been a poet, you know, you'd have been, um, you'd have been heading for the same set of concerns from a different direction. Enormously important. And... He moved you to the seaside, did he? Was that how you got to be in the seaside? Well, he's um, worked for Marine Scotland. He's the fishery officer. He used to work in the Kinver, and then he got a job in Ollapool, so we moved there to make things easier. And you know he's not going to move to the seaside now, so you're, you're, <laughs> there, for, you're there for good, you know. Parents and discovery. What do you do to get parents on board? And uh, you, I mean, you do tons with teachers. Well, I mean, and, and I would say grandparents. I live with my two granddaughters, so I'd, I'd say a big thing for grandparents. Yeah, well, I mean, speaking from my professional development angle, uh, we actually run professional development sessions for parents uh, so that we actually get in there and work with, 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 with schools and families and uh, create activities that they can recreate at home, particularly around kind of STEM activities. But we also run... Um, one of the things that we do uh, media-wise is, is summer adventures. So providing online tools and resources for families to, to learn at home and collaborate around using media uh, and around using kind of hands-on practical problem-solving real-life uh, activities that they can do in their own home with a few whole household bits and pieces. Um, dare I say it, back to my, my, my childhood sort of Blue Peter days kind of stuff. But, but that real, but, but being coached how to actually draw the best out of, out of the children. Because I remember talking to a, to a family uh, in, a, in, a, in a parent session we were doing in, in Q8 one time, and, I, and uh, the, the, the parent was a very senior government official uh, by chance, and um, he, he didn't spend a lot of time with his kids. And I said, you know, the thing that you should be asking yourself every day is not what am I going to tell my child today or teach them, is what questions am I going to ask them so that they are doing that learning. And that's the way that we kind of approach those sessions with parents and the resources we provide for parents is how do you create questions and problems and uh, ideas that the students, your kids can get engaged with and how do you help them to solve the problems rather than the, the kind of classic old don't worry, I'll do your homework for your business, you know, is, is how do you solve that problem? No, but I do, I do feel that um, our understanding of learning is moving so fast that we've left a lot of parents be behind. I mean, a simple thing with 900 million children a year do exams and high-stakes tests, and we've never said once to parents, this would be a good breakfast. If you had a big test tomorrow, big, you know, your sats, a big day coming up, your hires just around the corner. What would you have for your breakfast to get your brain buzzing? Um, something. Something. Pro probably, well, something's probably, a good answer. Probably a fruit salad. Oh, that's interesting. But you see, it's interesting that um, nobody's set. And you know, it's actually a bit of olive oil and avocado, some, some spinach, some turmeric would be good in there. I mean, we know, we absolutely know. There's a programme, by the way, if anybody wants to make it, you know, about you know, what's good for your brain before before an exam. But of course, where you've been, some lively old places in your job before, there's yeah. only parents, aren't there? 
I believe in capturing parents right from the start, and I think that's about getting them to be engaged, and again, in that life, those life skills for themselves in exactly the same way for the children. So when I run projects, I do exactly that. I've got parents and kids together doing psychometric work, looking at personality types, looking at influencing skills, how to negotiate. So I think you've got to involve parents because they're such a, a key part in a child's life. But the other thing is that transition for me as well. It's not just when they're at school or they're in an educational environment, which is a safe environment for the most part. It's when they leave that environment where you can have real transformational effect is when you've given them enough tools and skill sets that they understand that they then take into business because that's where the problem comes. It's not when they're at school in some respects for me. It's when they leave a safe environment. What we have to do from an educational perspective, I believe, is then, again, capture those individuals so we don't lose them. And they, they then lose hope because they're not in a, surrounded by people that want to mentor them and care for them. That, I think, is really, really important. And I've just come back. In fact, in Afghanistan, I've been working with a, a group that have just formed a, a boarding school for girls. And some of these girls have had to go through some of the most toughest territories you can imagine to get to the school and had they be caught on that journey it's likely something would have happened to them yeah um and that's about their parents sending them to those schools as well so again, but of course once you're outside of that i'd set up the charity not school which we 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 um built built learning for a thousand children a year who've been excluded from school you know you've got to be pretty naughty to get it chucked out you know and uh, they they were full of wisdom about about the moment when the school stopped being the safe place for them and the family already wasn't because that's what had gone wrong. But their community of learners was. And that sort of metacognition, learning about your learning, thinking, how can this be better? As the genie, you never get back in the bottle. I remember them saying once, the thing with school is when you're really crap at something, they give you more of it, which was a, a memorable moment. Yeah, they do, you know. Mm. By getting that right, is absolutely key. Well, well, I work with referral units, so I was in one the other day, and I had 40 of them in a room, normally they only work in six to eights because of they're so violent, and I spoke to them again just about their, where is it, what is, are their ambitions? In, in that room, they had um, someone wants to be a property developer, paramedic, I mean, you just name it, it was all there. And by discussing what that was, you could then see, well, now you can engage them in education, in knowledge, and all the other things, because you know what they want, that intrinsic motivation, which is what I think is so key, their passions, in order to help them learn. Because I'm not going to learn something that I'm not engaged with. It just becomes really difficult. Yeah. And I think that helps. And, and we're in a world of lifelong learning anyway. I mean, it's impossible, I think, to think we could... Uh, you know, you've only got... Um, Nine more years of learning ahead of you, then you're out of St Andrews or wherever you end up. I think I think you should go to Fremantle, but you know you'll you'll be out of university then. But your learning's not going to stop, is it? You're going to be your dad's still learning now, you know, and he's 104 or whatever it is. You know, it's um you keep you keep on learning all your life. So it seems silly that we should stop. So for all three of you, you know, your role in making learning happen, and I'll start with Andrew because you meet and drink for him really, but making learning happen for adults and people in residential homes in their 90s. and What do you need in the way of help to be able to reach learning across people's lives better? Well, and I don't say cheap TV licence, because that's a separate <laughs> conversation. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it is, it's engaging relevant content, because, I mean, one of the things we talk about is that, that, that learning should be motivating, not for the motivated. Yeah. That, that, that really, uh, it, it should be the learning experiences that, that make you want to learn more, that make you thirsty for the next bit of learning, rather than some dry, dreary uh, experience that is because you have an ambition to get to another step. That, that, that the content that you access is the thing that triggers the connections that you're going to make. Uh, you know, so certainly media is very strong at being able to, to provide that that spark of, of enthusiasm, and I've no doubt that that something could be produced that would work with Finley and his areas of enthusiasm, but that would actually within that have so many little pebbles in in the pond that would spark off interest in other areas that you wouldn't necessarily trace through through the initial first watch because it's that, that, because media is completed by the audience. So by creating rich motivating content which, which is essentially focused on learning you're, you're then creating the links and connections and the desire to walk through the next door uh, and I think you know the, the, the more you you, you recognise how people will take that their own lines of, of, of their, their kind of stream of consciousness learning yeah. uh, through through one thing to the to the next talk to the next piece it's all about that transparency yeah. isn't yeah. it seeing uh, 
So you okay. become your own curator, really. I mentioned earlier, my daughter runs this beach called beachgold.org if you want to go there, really, really interesting. But the big surprise there has been the number of pensioners who come down to watch the little ones learning and are now saying, can we have sessions for us as well? So, twinkle for pensioners, what do you reckon? Oh, we've already got it. Have you? Yeah. I did not know that. <laughs> Here's two things. To... We, we, Tell um... us about it. We had um, uh, an expert locally who has done a lot of work in care homes yeah. who produced a series of resources um, that are predominantly, not predominantly necessarily, but a lot of them are for adults with dementia. So there's kind of like reminiscence packs, which kind of promotes conversation, which helps memory, which yeah, yeah. helps short-term memory as Usually well as really picking up the long-term memory. Um, different, different topics... Uh, thing, things that they might not have seen recently. So, for example, like pictures of cigarette packets that were around before the war and images that you don't necessarily see now, collections of um, resources about music halls and lots of questions to prompt conversations, especially as the person trying to prompt the conversation won't actually know what they're trying to ask about because they haven't got the context themselves. Yeah, those long-term memories are great, a great route into your synapses, aren't they? Yeah. They really are. Look, the, um, the light's gone amber, so that's kind of, you know, we need to focus a bit here, team. Um, so my last big question for all four of you, really, is, you know, about the change prime minister. Who knows who we're going to get, you know? But what if you could make one thing better in education... Right now, he can say, OK, we're going to do one thing. What would it be? And we're going to start with Andrew and then with you, mate. Uh, it was a phrase I use a lot. It's make the important measurable, not the measurable important. Oh, that's very... Uh, mm -hmm. uh, the, the people always attribute um, to Einstein that not everything that counts can be counted. He never said it, but it's... Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly right. I like that. I just want them to listen. Listen to teachers, listen to children. It's a big ask, isn't it? <laughs> but, you know... <laughs> I mean, I've had to go through the Department of Education. I'm carrying their, carrying their bag at the moment, and there was a time when there was children's work all around the walls and places, and all the children's work's gone. There's no art where you have disappeared from the department as, a, as an entity that's just stuffed there now. Really sad, so... Listen, now I'd just take both of those... I would resource uh, education uh, fully so that you can give children adventures and experiences so that they can actually find their passions, they can find what's going to motivate them, and then I think you'll have no problems with education whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, the world seems to flip into two halves here. I mean, you've got the nations who are saying... Oh, yeah, if you like, yeah, OK, yeah. Mm. You've got the nations who are saying, um, golly gosh... Uh, we try and make education as cheap as we can. We're one of them right now, you know. And the nations who are saying, I'll tell you what, we'll invest money in education because we're always going to get the money back in national income. And that's a clear divide there, you know. Oh, I'm allowed to take questions from the audience. So, and there's one right at the back here. Hello. He's keen and he's in the expensive seat, so we better listen. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm uh, Chris Renshaw. I write uh, music now, but in a former life I recorded quite a bit of um, <coughs> educational audio for um, various companies. Um, two questions, and I know time is tight, so I'll be quick. Uh, the first one is, how much do you guys um, feel a pressure to um, subvert cultural norms in some of the countries that you work in? And I'll give you an example. I used to record um, uh, English language um, programmes for Qatar, and the company that published those uh, to Qatar uh, made a point of putting women in positions of power in any role-play scenarios, and they realised that they were subverting cultural expectations, and I commend them for doing it, but I realised that it's a sort of dangerous... Um, you know, thing to want to do. Uh, are you guys uh, active in, in that sort of um, process? Quick answer each. Um, not directly and consciously to subvert, 
but we certainly work by creating as diverse a picture as we can in any resource that we produce so that we are being as global in the, in the, in the media that we put together whilst at the same time not, not including things that we would know to be directly offensive. So it, it, it's, a, it's a complex idea that, that yes, we certainly put, uh, would try to include women in a, ro a range of roles and uh, uh, classrooms, for example, of mixed ethnicity, etc. But I wouldn't say we, we are consciously trying to subvert. Okay. Can I, I'll ask my second question quickly because I know there are other questions in the room and time is really tight. Um, <laughs> secondly, do you prioritise the countries that you try and work in? Because you've talked about learning edu education and um, it's a great ideal, but I sort of realised that that's not possible in some countries. So the, the programme that I work on now goes out in China, but it passes the centre in order to do that. Um, and people talk about the World Wide Web and that anyone can have access to education, and I know that that's not true. And that essentially, you might as well say it's the half World Web because around China there's a massive firewall, so you can put anything you want up there, but people in China aren't going to necessarily be able to see it. Um, and so with things like that in mind, um, do you try and prioritise the area where you, the, the countries of the world and, and that you can be most effective in? I think we've got to be really careful not to think the Western perspective is the truth and light and the way forward. And I think one of the things I've learned as I worked more and more and more in the world is to value other people's perspective and other people's cultures. And, you know, you work in North Nigeria and the reality there is if you build anything that looked like a school, Boko Haram going to come in the door and, you know, rape the teachers and kill the kids. So you've got to... You've got to work in the context of where you are. But I think I, my absolute faith is that if we can give learning to everybody, then from that learning will emerge, you know, new ways of mutuality and community and new ways of doing things. But there won't necessarily be the way we do things here. And we have a huge firewall around Britain. It's called uh, newspapers, you know, and it's very hard, for, as you heard, very hard to get in, into those. So I'm not... I'm not going to criticise China for doing differently what we do. They just do it differently. And I, I, my faith absolutely is give the power to the children, give them knowledge, give them deep understanding, give them the opportunity for ingenuity, and we will get there. I really do believe that with a passion. Look, the light's flashing, so um, they're all cutting throats down the front. We're in big trouble. I just want to say thank you, all of you, for what's thank been a really interesting conversation. I'm, I don't know if this is being streamed, but if you weren't here, by God, you should have been. And particularly, particularly say thank you, Finley, for stepping up and then stepping up and stepping up for all of us. Thank you and thank you very much. Thank you.